Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting with Professor Bala Venkatesh. Bala is a prominent intensivist and researcher and a former president of the Australia and New Zealand College of Intensive Care Medicine. He joins me today to discuss a recent paper in Critical Care and Resuscitation that sought to explore the issues around capacity to train intensive care specialists in Australia and New Zealand. Bala, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Bala, in the paper that you published recently in Critical Care and Resuscitation, you sought to quantify and qualify, I suppose, the, uh, the resource base for training for, um, through a survey mechanism for trainees, directors of uh, intensive care and supervisors of training. And that was under the auspices of the, uh, critical, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the College of Intensive Care Medicine's Capacity to Train Working Party. What was the background for this study? Why did you seek to, uh, to review the resource base? Uh, Todd, look, it's a very good question. Um, now, as you know, our, our specialty has grown at a very rapid pace over the last 15 to 20 years, um, both in terms of the increase in number of um, st- staff, both senior staff and trainees, as well as an increase in the number of um, beds in the ICUs across tertiary and regional and rural centers. And one of the questions has been that when we have high training numbers, it could have implications for ensuring that they get quality training. And because they all have their, you know, they need to have the supervision, the clinical experience, the procedural exposure, and we also have a number of specialty rotations that they need to get. And the question really is, you know, are we in a position to deliver that? That's, I guess, is one important aspect. The second thing is that the SICM introduced major changes to the curriculum in 2014. And so, um, and this is in fact a much more extended curriculum with an expansion in all domains of training and a number of new requirements. And, and against this increased number of trainees and increased um, requirements, on the other side, we, the number of units accredited for training has largely remained the same. So concerns have been raised by a number of fellows and trainees at national meetings, at regional committees, and during informal conversations as to whether we're reaching saturation capacity for training. So it was really against this backdrop that the the SICM decided to form a working party. Um, This is back in 2017 when Charlie Cork was the president. And I was still on the board of the college, and he asked me to lead that um, working party at the time. And so it's it's evolved from that. So we um, we thought we decided to survey the trainees and the fellows to gather some information on the resources and our capacity to to train people. 
Bala, is it a theoretical concern about the capacity to train or is there um, evidence that we're not able to train the, the number of trainees that we currently have? Look, I, I don't think it's a theoretical concern. There is some... Um, when we examine this question, so we, we, we looked at the um, this question from... Um, from a few different lenses. One is from that of the trainees, who are the most important people for whom this is being done. And secondly, from the directors of the units. Um, and we looked at a number of domains. We, um, we, we sought to look at, um, obviously, the case mix, the procedural experience and um, the rotation availability and the difficulties in accessing those rotations and also the proportion of time spent um, doing outside ICU tasks, such as um, rapid response calls, and so on. So, so we actually looked at it in a number of domains. And, and, and of concern, uh, there are a few things, few things stood out. And um, one was that, um, um, uh, that the procedural experience uh, again, this is going back. This survey captured the data of their previous 12-month ICU rotation. So, so keeping all that in mind, um, there there were concerns with the amount number of procedures trainees were able to perform. Importantly, uh, trainees reported difficulties in accessing rotations, particularly anesthesia terms, and this added almost an extra year to their training program. And um, and the other important factor was uh, nearly a third of the trainees felt that they were even coming close to the end of their training time that they were unprepared to take on the role as a specialist, which was an observation shared by about 15% of directors. So, so to answer your question, it's not a theoretical concern. I think there are some... There are some practical issues, and this is something the college will need to look at. Is there any evidence that we are unable to produce the types of specialists that we are hoping for? Is there any evidence that the program as it exists at the moment is insufficient to train um, uh, trainees to the level that we expect them to be? Oh, no, look, I, no, I don't believe that is the case. I, I think... Um, I believe we still have the best training program in intensive care in the world, without a doubt. Um, you know, we have, it's a six-year program and it's very comprehensive. And I don't think that's the question. But what, what we have to keep in mind is that as the numbers of trainees, um, as they continue to increase, we need to determine whether we have um, the same level of um, um, resource capabilities to for them to get that same level of training. And at the moment, it might still be okay. And um, um, but we really have to look look at this in the longer term. Um, and um, uh, I guess one of the things to keep in mind is. Um, is that I, an earlier survey that we we reported for the college uh, a few years ago when we did a workforce survey, amongst the junior staff, 
one-third of the junior staff in the ICU are SICM trainees. About a third are non-SICM trainees. And another third are non-trainees. So, so, the, so the, a, a large part of this load is, is I guess, um, is um, um, in terms of procedural experience and so on, um, is available for non-trainees as well. So we need to now work through ensuring that when we get second trainees into the system, that they get the procedural experience required. So there's certainly adequate number of procedures available within the system. Fix is there in the system. The ability to supervise is all there. But we just need to make, we need to ensure when we get these people coming through that they get the requisite number of procedures. So, so, so these are things for us to keep in mind. So this study included three surveys, one of the trainees, one of the directors of intensive care, and then the supervisors of training in each of the institutions. What did you find about the major roadblocks to training in Australia and New Zealand in intensive care? Look, we, um, we don't, the, the, well, I, I, the, the, just to point out, the directors of the training surveys um, there were a number of similar domains in both those surveys, and we sent them out at the same time. The supervisor training survey was really a, a sort of a post-hoc uh, planned survey. After we got the initial surveys back, we decided to, and after we analyzed the results, we wanted to get additional data, and so we sent the SOT survey to, to them to particularly to get more precise information on anesthesia and medicine positions in their respective hospitals, and also to capture the, the, the question of the transitional year positions. So, so that's the background. In terms of the roadblocks, look, we, we, don't, we don't specifically have any major hurdles at the moment, but I think capturing this data has brought the focus onto I mean, it's really effectively some concerns raised by the trainees. If trainees are saying they've got to wait one extra year to get an anesthesia term, if a third of them are saying that, then we've got to, go, we've got to look into it to see what we can do to minimize that problem, if not eliminate the problem. That's one, one important question. The, the second thing we've got to look into and of concern is towards the end of the training time, um, a sizable proportion are feeling underprepared for this. Again, we've got to, um, we've got to go back and, um, and address this problem. So um, there are no roadblocks for them to enter the pathway. There's a training selection um, criteria. They've got to go through an application form and an interview, and I think they're pretty straightforward. And most people who apply get into the pathway. So it's really at the other end ensuring that we are delivering a very good product for uh, for the community is that's that's what we've got to look at. Bala, one of the issues that seemed to come through was the as you as you mentioned the access to specialist rotations such as anesthesia, uh, paediatric intensive care, and uh, rotations such as medicine or regional practice. Um, what did you find about that issue, and how big a problem is it for for people? Um, Look, um, so 
there, there, there were a number of questions there. So the, um, um, so, so the, when we asked the trainees, uh, can you point out in the curriculum where you felt you, are, you, are, you felt your training was not optimal? There were a number of things they reported, one of which is um, um, the um, overall ICU time, uh, particularly cardiothoracic ICU, pediatric ICU, as you mentioned. And also, um, they felt that they did not have enough experience in end-of-life discussions, pal care, and communication skills, and so on. So, but, but then, um, so I think the thing to keep in mind also is that these, a large number of these people were pre-2014 curriculum. So, so um, a number of these, these, the, these deficiencies could possibly be addressed with the new curriculum where it mandates a number of these modules to be undertaken. So hopefully with the new curriculum, we might get past some of these things. But the, the difficult part really still is the, the, the anesthesia job, which is, which is very, very um, um, difficult to get in certain regions. The other thing, of course, which stands out is that um, um, nearly 20% of their time is spent in a number of units doing um, um, outreach activities like rapid response and TPN rounds and tracheostomy rounds and so on. Now, it's a, one could argue that's part of core ICU, but then that takes the people away from um, the main um, sort of what we call mainstream ICU um, experience like you know, critically ill patients and um, mechanical ventilation, um, cardiovascular crises management and so on and so forth. So that's the other thing we've got to think about now. You know, what, what is the optimal time of, which should be acceptable um, from a college perspective, uh, you know, in terms of going off to the wards and so on and so forth. So that's the other thing. Bala, one of the other themes that came through was um, the potential load on the units themselves. For example, a third of the directors said that they couldn't uh, sustain the uh, or cope with the assessment load that was imposed by increasing numbers of trainees, and a quarter believed that they might have trouble in providing the expected level of supervision. What do you think um, the impacts are likely to be with, uh, with regard to that sort of drain on, on uh, the units themselves? Look, look yeah, a very, very good question. It is, um, 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 look, we, we are, as the new curriculum is, is getting in and being applied to the new trainees, we are starting to see the workload. Now, this was looked at in detail when the curriculum was developed, um, and we obviously modeled, but then clearly no modeling um, approach is perfect. And we are, um, and look, there will, there will be teething problems, and I think as people start to get used to the new um, uh, work-based assessments, um, I think the real burden of the workload will, will emerge. But I think we also have um, a number of staff. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that this, the workplace-based assessments are not the, um, they're not the responsibility of the SOT alone. It's really the whole department has got to be doing this. And so we have had increases in senior ICU staff, 
at the consultant staff. So it should be possible for the department as a whole to be able to provide the assessment. Um, the, the, only, the only the sort of caveat with this story is that from, from an examination perspective, where the, with the current examination format, we, we could potentially be reaching saturation capacity in terms of the number of people we are able to examine in one sitting. And, um, and that is, again, being monitored by the examination committee. Um, and, um, and we will have to see how that evolves. And that's, again, um, something to, for, you know, to keep an eye on. Bala, one of the issues, as you mentioned, is procedural competence and exposure to an adequate number of procedures. What did you find in the survey in regard to this? So, what um, when we 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 had a uh, when we when you look at the the, um, the 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 results, for example, the um, um, if you look at the percentage of uh, um, respondents experiencing their with uh, their experience with common ICU procedures, and we are looking at you know common things like uh, central lines and intubations and um, ICCs and perk trachies and renal replacement therapy. Now, you know about 15% said they had not actually done an ICC in the previous 12 month ICU term. So it's one in six had not done an intercostal catheter. And one in three had not been involved with the perk tracking. Now, that's, that's, that's of concern. And, um, and, you know, if you're working in a, in a unit and, you know, usually you work a standard 50-hour week, you would expect to do, you know, at least one central line um, a fortnight. And so you should be doing about 25 lines a year. Uh, and about, um, you know, 7.5% of the, that's about 1 in 12 people said they had done less than 10 central lines in the whole year. And um, so, so it's, so there is clearly, I think, um, you know, why, why that is the case, we don't know. Part of it could be, you know, this is just based on recall. So there, there could be certainly... Um, uh, you know, potential for error in these in these reports, but the fact is, yes. So, the, so the, the, that's 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 the that's what we reported in the survey with um, lack of experience with common ICU procedures. Um, Bala, as you mentioned earlier, there there must be concern from the college regarding the number of trainees and the number of supervisors who believe that graduates are not as well prepared for consultant practices they may need to be. What was the, some of the reasons why um, they were, this was being expressed by the trainees? Um, look, the, the, the directors did not report any specific um, um, causes or reasons as to why they felt they would not be um, prepared for consultant practice. Um, the trainees again didn't list any specific reasons, um, but the so just to just to give an idea where the um, you know where they felt underprepared, um, they said um, you know the they did not have sufficient on-call exposure, 
So the, for them to be on remote call was a very new concept because the training from the our current method of training doesn't prepare you for remote call, and that was a factor mentioned by nearly 23%. Um, about 30% said they had not had any pediatric ICU experience. Um, and half of them, about half of them felt underprepared to have end-of-life discussions and you know, look after patients in the terminal phases of their illness. So, I mean, these are just some of the... Um, uh, plus, a large number of them felt that you know the ICU time would you know they would have prepared to have, uh, they would have liked to have had more ICU time overall to get a breadth of exposure. So um, yes, I, I guess you know these are the things that um, the the trainees listed uh, where they felt the curriculum could have been better. So Bella, where does all of this leave us in the college in terms of preparing for the future? Is it at a, are we at a point where we need to start limiting the number of trainees in order to make our best use of these um, limited resources? Look, I mean the, the college clearly takes this um, very seriously. So they are, um, I mean, as you know, um, Ray Raper, who's the president of the college, was one of the authors of this paper. Um, uh, and I think I think the, the the first thing also to keep in mind, Todd, is that you know we've got to whilst the survey results are important, interesting, and certainly provide a lot of um, insight into the process. We have, there are some potential limitations. One is of course the response rate from the trainees was low, so that's something that we've got to keep in mind. Although they were all from people who had done the first and second part exam, um, we also could not capture the reasons why. They, you know, they could not um, get to do certain procedures. Um, is that because they were spent all their time outside the ICU doing rapid response calls? We don't know. Um, and, uh, um, 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 and also um, the thing to keep in mind is that the overall, the other sort of underpreparedness for the consultant practice, it's possible that... Um, with the new curriculum where we have a transitional year concept, hopefully with that coming in, it might actually um, overcome some of those limitations mentioned by the by the trainees. So, um, so it's um, I think keeping all those in mind. Nevertheless, I think the college is going to look into this, and um, also look. We can't really we can't arrive at any numbers based on what's the optimal number of training based on this data because um, because as we know, we can't predict how much the demand will increase over the next few years for a start, how the, how the nature of intensive care will change. Um, we, um, um, we, also, um, um, we also do not know, we, also, we are also aware that any potential modeling is fraught with, with, um, with inaccuracies. So we've got to keep all this in mind, but nevertheless, I think the college is going to, the board as a whole is going to review this data and they're going to come up with proposals. I mean, one of them could be possibly a logbook. They might decide, perhaps we now, we now know what's the average numbers of procedures people are doing. So this gives us a framework to say, Perhaps as a trainee, you should be doing about 25 central lines every year or 75 central lines in your entire 
um, three and a half years of um, your ICU time. So, so they've got to, they might mandate a logbook. Barlow, in addition to limiting the number of trainees, another approach is to potentially make better use of the resources that we currently have. Does your data on from these surveys or from other background work suggest that there are ways that we can uh, improve our use of the resources that we have? Uh, look, um, I, yes, we... Um, so sort of the question then becomes... Um, you see, as I mentioned before, the the for example, let's just take the 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 question of procedures. The procedural experience is now shared by all the junior staff in the ICU, who comprise of second trainees, non-second trainees, and non-trainees. You know, a case could be made, for example, certain specialized procedures like a perk tracking, really. One could argue that it's really not necessary for a someone who's in the ICU as a um, um, as a physician trainee or an anesthesia trainee, but not intending to do ICU. There is really no um, requirement for them to be involved in a perk tracking. Uh, by the same token, um, uh, you know, putting PA catheters in. So, so, so these are you know one one will have to look at those sorts of um, new methods how we can quarantine certain procedures for our college trainees so they get better access to experience and procedural competence. The, the other thing, of course, is, um, you know, we've got to look at, um, you know, there are a number of anesthesia positions. At the moment, we, have, we actually do not have. Uh, we only um, provide, we only approve anesthesia training in sites approved by, uh, in, in FANSCA, accredited hospitals. Uh, there are a number of hospitals where a, a, large, a huge amount of anesthesia work is undertaken, and certainly in the private, a, large, a fair bit of anesthesia is undertaken in the private sector, and one should really look at those, start looking at those options, you know. Can these people get training in the private sector? And that is something for the college to explore. Bala, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast to go through your article. It's uh, certainly a very interesting space and we look forward to hearing uh, further developments over the next couple of years. Thanks very much, Todd. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. For more interviews just like this one, visit our website, osla.force.com.